0: Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 224 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I did my first marathon chase on Sunday. Can you explain that for people? Not me,
1: obviously,
0: (laughs) but people. Okay, Hello, people. To explain this to Hannah, I mean, people, it's when you've got someone running a marathon. In my case, it was the London Marathon and you sort of pop up at regular intervals to give them a power up, maybe some jelly babies, some sun cream, a little kind of boost to their energy levels as they're slogging away through 26.2 miles. What on you? Yeah, it was really good fun. I've got a sore throat from shouting uh, encouraging words at lots and lots of runners. How did they do? Oh, Lee, bless him. He did really well. He did five hours, which is excellent. I am going to give a big up to my sister-in-law, Kate, though, who ran the London Marathon in three hours, 12 minutes. Which is almost elite level, I would say. I think it's psychopathic, (laughs) I'm honest with you, (laughs) Jen. (laughs) Christmas is going to be interesting. She moves too fast. But well done, Kate. I'm not sure I could do it that fast on roller skates. (laughs) I'd love to see you try it. Let's make this happen.
1: (laughs) I'm Hannah Don Levy, and this weekend I had the chainsaw out.
0: Were you also encouraging people to move faster?
1: Yeah, yeah. Now I was cutting my hedge, and I just thought, you know, my road's a bit of a main thoroughfare. In fact, schools just turned out, so you can probably hear the kids outside. Get a lot of walk past traffic in my street. A lot of people walked past me. Half a dozen of them stopped to say something to me. Had earphones in, so I didn't give a fuck what they were saying. Do I guess the gender of the people who decided I needed some sort of extra instruction or input on my chainsaw use? Almost certain it would be women, Hannah. I'm not. I think it was men. Was it men? Yeah, funnily enough, Jen, it really was.
2: What did you say to them? Because obviously you couldn't hear them. So what was your reaction? Did you wield your chainsaw aloft and sort
1: of... Like you were fighting a
0: zombie apocalypse? Yeah, Texas
1: Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. It was the Arbury Chainsaw Massacre. I'm surprised you've not read it in the news.
0: Jen, I don't know if you knew this before, but Hannah always does gardening wearing somebody else's face. Uh, (laughs) You don't want to get stuff on your own face. When
1: all the bits fly out of the bush that has been (laughs) living in there to bite you, they
0: just bite the face. I didn't say it wasn't a practical solution. (laughs) Your honour.
2: Let's all go here. On that bombshell, I'm Jen Offord and I've made a shirt, everyone.
0: With that collar and buttons and everything.
2: Yep. yep. Collar, buttons, buttonholes, gathering about the sleeves. Ooh,
0: lovely, yeah. incredible
2: seams. Yeah. Just don't come very close and look at the seams because they are an absolute shit show on the old finish. But uh, but if you don't look <laughs> too close, it looks fucking lovely. I'm really proud of myself. Thanks.
0: Why aren't you wearing it today so we can appreciate your workmanship? It's for special.
2: Because I like to only ever wear my house cardigan when we record.
1: (laughs) That is true. She's dressed for business. I like to resemble uh, a depressed Scandinavian cop. What I think the last five minutes have taught our listeners is Jen likes making stuff. I like destroying stuff. And you like living vicariously through other runners. True stories. Absolute true stories. (laughs) Coming up, I talk to one of the youngest survivors of the Holocaust, Tova Friedman, whose amazing life story you can now read in her memoir, Daughter of Auschwitz. She's also very big on TikTok now.
0: That's an incredible life to have led from Auschwitz. Trajectory, yeah. Yeah, to TikTok. (laughs) Wowzers. Yeah. I chat with the force for good that is Soma Sara about everyone's invited, her campaign focused on exposing rape culture. And we also chat about the damage done by porn, the reality of online lives and why parents really need to step up when it comes to conversations around sex, no matter how uncomfortable it makes them.
1: Can I just say there's an age when parents should stop talking to their children (laughs) about sex, though? There's definitely,
0: there is a cut-off point. (laughs)
2: There's a link there to Rated or Dated. Someone needs to be having a word with Al Pacino. Anyway, in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking major stages for women's sport and plot twist, we rate or date 1997's The Devil's
1: Advocate.
0: But first, U-turns, wait times and legacy. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q stink. Bush Telegraph.
1: Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Watching the news like it's the first week of The Apprentice, except these bellends have already won. <laughs> oh,
0: oh, oh. Although, whoa, Hannah, easy now, Tiger, come on. <laughs> they get it and they have listened. Yep, in a statement that reads like it's been written as some sort of wackaging for artisanal oat milk. Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng and Prime Minister Liz Truss have scrapped the planned scrapping of the 45% top rate of income tax. For those who don't like double negatives, that means that the 45% (laughs) top rate of income tax is still going to happen. It's still going to be there.
1: For those who don't understand them, Mickey, I think
0: that's what you were kindly saying about me. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out Boris Johnson's legacy is a blend of incompetence and humiliating U-turns. What a guy. I'm really missing him. But back to the current shower. Kwarteng's statement, released early Monday morning, says, It is clear that the abolition of the 45p tax rate has become a distraction from our overriding mission to tackle the challenges facing our country. That's right. We were all just distracted like we were a little bit hungry or we'd seen a badger fly in a kite <laughs> rather than being utterly appalled by a policy intending to slash taxes for the rich by slashing benefits for those most in need. I mean, when even your fellow Tories are muttering, oh, that's just not right. You surely realise that on a scale of one to cunt, your actions are the pure cuntiest. And it does appear to have been objection from Conservative MPs that have steered the screeching handbrake turn. On the Today programme, um today, Nick Robinson was pulling no punches with Quateng, saying, Chancellor, it's no use saying, well, of course we've listened. For two weeks, you've done the opposite of listening. Teng's response? Well, it was about nine days. What a relief he's such Aww. a details man. Oh, are you relieved, Hannah? I feel reassured.
1: I feel like there's a conversation there about listening and hearing that's like speaking and talking (laughs) from Glengarry Glen Ross.
0: Although I do feel he's probably watched Glengarry Glen Ross too much already, to be honest (laughs) with you. Yeah, maybe. Kwarteng insisted much of the market turmoil was caused by international factors, and though he declined repeated invitations to apologise, he did eventually concede, there's humiliation and contrition, and I'm happy to own it. And indeed, buying shares in Tory humiliation does seem a wise investment around now. Kuateng's mistake cost us £65 billion. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor have yet to explain how they will support all the people who have lost mortgages entirely or are now facing hugely more expensive monthly payments. And no, I wouldn't advise you buy shares in when that'll happen. But at least they're listening, eh? I mean, that's what the man said. And he's clearly heard that what the already struggling people of this country want is cuts of up to £18 billion to public services already on their knees, i.e., the NHS and schools. Mm. And would you look at that? Here's David Davis in The Telegraph to inform us the only way to save a health service not fit for the 21st century is with an insurance-based system. Oh, why is it so fucked, Dave? Any answers? Anyway, his solution is to learn from the systems in Europe. Former Brexit Secretary David Davis there. What a Uh, guy. I am uh. missing him. But back to the current shower. They might have done a U-turn on one aspect of their fumbled fiscal event. That's a mini budget to you and me. But Quarteng and Truss's instincts are to reverse Robin Hood. There is no doubt about it. And the money needed to fund what's left of their massive tax giveaway still looks set to come from slashing benefits and ignoring soaring inflation when it comes to allocating spending. No cash prizes for guessing who loses out most there. And yet... All of those crowing that this means we'll soon be seeing the back of Truss appear to have forgotten something if, when, she goes. It's not Labour's turn. Hannah doesn't get a shot. We don't find out whether Jen's benign dictatorship's a winner. (laughs) No, we get another fucking Tory, probably Rishi Sunak. Because until the next general election, when we can roar how we really feel at the ballot box, all that's on offer is different but the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was comparing them to the uh, Habsburgs the other day and sort of their quality. You know, Liz Truss is now like the the Habsburgs where their lower jaw was about six inches. uh, You know, I'm not talking about... I'm not taking the mickey out of what she looks like, but I'm saying they became so sort of monstrously inbred yeah. yeah, there's just like one that had one black testicle and that was that was all (laughs) and so I feel that you know what on earth could possibly be next if this is sort of the law of diminishing returns
0: I'm not saying
1: that I think the early Tory prime ministers were were good but you know in comparison they seem amazing absolutely Mickey I mean I can't believe I'm going to say this as a follow-up but let's talk about cancer okay Now, I know it's not everybody's topic of choice, but here we are. And since two stories in the last week have focused on experiences of people with cancer in the UK and none of the news is good, well, we'd be wise not to ignore it. Mm -hmm. First up, The Guardian reported this weekend that its analysis of NHS England data showed that patients with suspected skin and breast cancer have experienced the largest increase in waiting times of anyone urgently referred to a cancer specialist. When being referred by a GP, the maximum, and I'm putting that in quotes, waiting time is supposed to be 14 days. But in July, 22% or 53,000 people in England waited longer than two weeks with almost 10,000 patients having to wait for more than 28 days. Of those 10,000, 75% were suspected of having skin, breast or lower gastrointestinal cancer. Sorry to go all Caroline Priada Perez here, but there's no sex disaggregated data available. But draw your own conclusions about who is most commonly diagnosed with breast cancer.
0: Okay, will do. Thanks.
1: Someone close to me is currently being treated for cancer, aren't they always? Sadly. So I can tell you how terrifyingly quick cancer can spread through the body. But no need to take it from me. Here's Matt's sample. The policy—that's a funny name. Isn't it? I'm sorry.
0: Um, i talking about our research is Matt Sample. Yeah, it sounds a
1: little bit like um, like those things you get uh, when you see. Do I want this carpet? Do I?
0: Anyway, um, <laughs> or a Mister Man book?
1: Yeah, this Matt Sample, I'm sure, is a lovely man. Is the policy manager at Cancer Research UK? When speaking to the Guardian, he said, "Quote: When just a matter of weeks can be enough for some cancers to progress." This is unacceptable. Too
0: right, Mr. Sample.
1: Meanwhile, BBC Newsbeat this week reported a warning from charities that young cancer patients who are facing dramatically increased living costs are in, quote, a desperate situation. Macmillan Cancer Support and Young Lives versus Cancer have both witnessed big increases in the number of people asking for emergency grants. And more than half of 18 to 39-year-olds with cancer surveyed by Macmillan and Virgin Money said they needed more financial support. Macmillan's Chris Jones said, quote, in July, we saw a 292% increase in grant applications versus the same month last year. It is really worrying to see so many people worried about food.
0: It's terrifying, isn't it? Like the whole yes. thing is terrifying. Cancer is terrifying. But then to think, can I even feed myself at the same time? you know, the old adage, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a level of comfort and security Mm. that is all the more important when you're poorly.
1: Yeah. And it means that you can afford to drive your car and Mm -hmm. park your car at the hospital for your appointments rather than perhaps have to, if you feel really dreadful, have to have to be on public transport. Yeah. Yeah,
0: totally.
1: Anyway, do you want some good news, Mick?
0: Yes, please, Hannah.
1: Well, remember a few months ago when I talked about a commission of inquiry into forensic DNA testing in Queensland?
0: I do indeed. And it spurred me on to listen to The Teacher's Pet, which isn't the podcast you're about to talk about, but is also excellent.
1: Yeah. So this inquiry had been announced following revelations about the quality of testing at the lab used by police in the Australian state. How significant is this? Well, I'm going to defer to the Australian newspaper here as it was its podcast, Shandy's Story, which first uncovered the scandal. They called it, quote, the largest health and justice crisis in Queensland's history. Dozens, potentially hundreds, potentially thousands of criminals have been able to escape justice when DNA left at a crime scene was, often erroneously, deemed insufficient to yield a profile. But why listen to me talking about it when you can listen to the actual experts Hedley Thomas and the team behind the Shandy's Story podcast are covering the inquiry in a separate weekly podcast called Shandy's Legacy, which you can listen to wherever it is you listen to your podcasts.
0: And is it this extra podcast that is the good news in the good news story? It is that that inquiry has
1: opened is the good news. Now, obviously, it's not good news that this has happened, Mm. but that they might get to the bottom of it and that people may end up, being able to be charged because the only thing that the police didn't have on that person was evidence that they were actually there yeah you know justice might actually be coming which will be traumatic i'm sure for a lot of people but But ultimately good news
0: news, definitely yeah and while we're talking about podcasts there is an easy very helpful thing you can do for your favorite podcast this one and that is to rate and review it wherever you listen i thanks you More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I beg you women for the love of all things patriarchal, know your place. (laughs) Big up to my main man, Professor John Paul Leach, consultant neurologist and head of undergraduate medicine at the university of glasgow who clearly has an incredible insight into what goes on in your average lady brain hannah i'm going to read out some of the areas he named on a graphic of the female brain as part of a teaching session and i'd like you to squeal like an old school disney princess at all those that apply to you i'm excited (laughs) shoes no Weird. That's a big old section on Leech's mind map. (laughs) Gossip control centre. I don't even know what that means. Well, it's another solidly sized area there. Interesting. Talk, talk and more talk. (laughs) Uh... Come on, Hannah. Call yourself a woman. Driving skills.
1: Uh, Does that mean am I thinking that I'm a good driver? I mean, lols, as if, because this section <laughs> is so small,
0: you can't even see it. The scamp. Unlike the gold digging sensory and headache generator areas, which are huge. I mean, of course they are. It's science. <laughs> and I can't not mention Sir Lololot Leech's footnote, Rich reads, The put oil into the car and be quiet during the game glands are active only when the shiny things and diamonds olfactory has been satisfied or when there is a shoe sale.
1: Is he writing
0: from
3: the past?
0: (laughs) I think he's a ghost. Look, there is a reason I'm not actually laughing at this. And it's not because there's no sense of fucking humour gland on Leech's fucking graphic. This sexist shit is damaging and it has no place in education. And that's before I mention that, according to research from the British Medical Association, 91% of female doctors have experienced sexism at work, including unwanted physical contact and denial of opportunities. That same research found that 70% of women felt that their clinical ability had been doubted or undervalued because of their gender. Hannah, do you want to guess what percentage of men felt that way?
1: No, sorry, I'm thinking
0: about shoes. <laughs> Fair dues. You are a classic woman. 4%. 4% of men. Wow. Uh, and what's that? Oh, there's something tickling my... Oh, the fucking irony area. And it is that male doctors are much more likely to fail their patients, particularly their female patients particularly particularly oh cool i'm just going to stick with what i said the first time (laughs) research published in december last year found that women are 32 percent more likely to die after being operated on by a male surgeon rather than a female surgeon men who had an operation had similar outcomes regardless of whether their surgeon was male or female with the exception being significantly decreased mortality for men when the surgeon was female no wonder we've got a headache, man. Fucking hell. Yeah, fuck off with your shiny
1: things. Hello there, Hannah here. Just to let you know a bit about this upcoming interview because I didn't want to waste the time I had with Tova Friedman doing that. Tova lives in New Jersey, America, with her family, but she was born in Poland in 1938 and was just a year old when Germany invaded the country. Her earliest memories are of life in a Jewish ghetto and then being moved with her parents to Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp, although of course the family were separated upon arrival. Her book, The Daughter of Auschwitz, which details her life during and after the war, is available to buy now, and you can find her on TikTok, where she has amassed almost half a million followers and is at Tova Friedman. Welcome to Standard Issue, Tova. Thank you. What a privilege to be able to have a chat with you. I've just finished your incredible book.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you.
1: It's beautifully written and it really does show the best and worst of humanity. It's been 78 years nearly since Auschwitz-Birkenau was liberated by the Russian forces. And you've been speaking publicly about your experiences for many, many years. So I wonder, why did you decide to write this book now?
3: Well, I want to tell you, when you speak in in public, which I do, you've got 45 minutes, 45 minutes usually, 15 minutes for questions, and you're finished, you're done. This is such a complicated era for me as a child, for the world. I couldn't possibly get across everything I wanted to. And especially when I speak to high school kids, I had to be very careful what I could share And then when I got a chance, because Malcolm, the co-writer, contacted me, I've been trying to write it, but I just wasn't disciplined enough. When he contacted me and he proposed that we co-write this book, it was fabulous. The timing was right. You know, uh, it was COVID. Uh I worked from my bed. I didn't go (laughs) anywhere. I didn't even have to get dressed if I didn't want to. The timing and everything was right, except that he was in a different country, Mm. different continent, Europe and America, and that we weren't together to discuss things. So it was a challenge. But everything about all the moon and the stars lined up in the right place. Yeah. And we could do that.
1: Well, you're obviously getting good at tech, and I know this because firstly, we're on Zoom. And secondly... You've also become a well-known face on TikTok recently. I mean, oh, yes. I can't make head nor tail of TikTok, so well done for that. What have you learned about young people's knowledge and opinions on the Holocaust from being on TikTok?
3: Well, from TikTok, it's a different community that listens to it. It's mostly young people, mostly people who have not been exposed to the Holocaust, and they ask fabulous questions what I am gratified is that so many young people are interested. You would think they say, oh my God, it happened in my grandparents' time, Mm. who cares? I mean, even before, I'm even older than some of their grandparents, the great grandparents' time in a sense. And yet, and yet they watch, they listen, they ask questions, they want me to answer them are very, very, very gratifying. I feel that we, the Holocaust survivors, which I am one of the youngest, will be remembered by these people who knew nothing about it two years ago, a year ago, until my grandson gave them some information.
1: Why do you think that they don't know anything about it?
3: Are they not learning about it in school? They're not learning in school very much. I mean, New Jersey does have a mandate, but not a very big one. In fact, let me tell you, one of the interviewers, adult, won't mention who it was, because I, even if I wanted to, I can't remember his name. <laughs> <laughs> because there were so many different people. I liked every one of them. Mm. This was a male married with two little children. I won't even tell you what country he was from. He said, I knew nothing about it. I said, how can you be an interviewer? He He said, but I read your book. That's why. And I said, here is a man talking to the public about other things, certainly not about the Holocaust, knew very little about it. He said, I learned so much. And he was in his early 40s. That's incredible. A European person. Well, that that surprises me even more because
1: I think in the United Kingdom, our kids do learn about it a bit more and they go on school trips to places like Auschwitz. Not every school, obviously, but...
3: But how new is it? When did they start the program?
1: I don't know because I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure I can remember what I learned about the Holocaust in school. And this man was in school, let's say, 25 years ago. Yeah, that's incredible. That really surprises me. The fact that you are here, that we are having this conversation, that you survived life in a ghetto, you survived the gas chamber, you survived illness and malnutrition. I mean, we could call that a miracle, but I think in a lot of ways... That obscures the fact that a lot of the reason you survived was because your parents made some really hard decisions.
3: Absolutely. I could not have survived without them.
1: One of those decisions was that your mum did not sugarcoat stuff for you, even at that very young age. Can you tell us a little bit more about how
3: your mum helped you through this experience? Well, how did she go through it? Yeah. She went through it like a champion until she was liberated. And she had time, mm. settle down, and to think. You know how it is. Okay, I want to give you an example in normal life. If you have a terrible car car accident where you almost die, and you're fine, and when you get out of the car, you're not so comfortable getting back into driving yeah. again, because it's in the back of your mind. It's like it's there. You've got time to think about it. Oh my God, what did I do? What happened? So after the war, my mother, when we came to Poland, we were in Poland, back to the hometown, Tomaszow Mazowiecki. And she realized that no, nobody was coming back from her family, 150 people. And she couldn't handle it. And she got very depressed and sick. And she never recuperated emotionally. See, once I was safe mm. and my father was around, and he, he fared much better psychologically. He also had three sisters that came back. She, she even said to me, if I could only have a cousin, one cousin, mm. that, that I could talk to that cousin about my, my parents that knew me before the war, she didn't even have that. She had me only to talk about. So she didn't feel well after the war. Th- that's
1: really interesting because I wanted to talk to you about memory, Because earlier this year, I interviewed a woman who had escaped from North Korea. And we talked about memory and how, obviously, the horrific things that happened to her are burned into her brain and she will always remember them. But some of the more sort of normal or even happy aspects of life, even within that terrible regime, are harder to remember because she doesn't have contact with the people that help her remember that stuff, and that must be exactly how things were for your mother.
3: It was more than that. She, she, my mother was kept telling me, you know, you'll never know the family you came from. You know, you'll never know. She came from a very erudite uh, Jewish rabbinical dynasty. They were like her father, her grandfather, her great grandfather. There was like a, a scholarly. Uh, uh, Hasidim. Hasidim is a a sect of very ultra-Orthodox Jews that they kept together. I mean, you can even say a type of a cult, although it really wasn't in Europe. And she said to me, you'll never know. You'll never know. In fact, in Auschwitz, when we were contemplating of leaving, she spoke to me and she said, oh, you'll meet your family. It, It didn't occur to her. It wasn't in her mind that nobody, that that everybody would be killed. Nine brothers and sisters yeah. and all the children. They had 10 children each. They were very religious. She knew her parents were dead. Her father died even before the war. That was acceptable in a way. All brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and cousins. Then when she realized nobody was there, she said to me, you'll never know. You'll never, never know. And she died very young. She suffered every single day of her life after the war.
1: Yeah, because I think that's important to say, isn't it, for people listening? It's it's not just victim. Victims aren't just people who died. Victims continue to be victims long after. I know victim is a difficult word because people don't like it, but your your mum died as a result of the Holocaust, even if she didn't die during it.
3: My mother was a, a victim, I think it was also related. I don't think I wrote it in the book. You know, I only had seven, eight months together with Malcolm to write the whole thing. Usually it takes years thinking. We just didn't have the time, but someplace I'm not sure. I mentioned it that she stole a, a potato as she was working Mm -hmm. to get me a piece of bread for my birthday and so forth. And she was beaten very, very seriously on her head and i think she died from something some head injury yeah when uh, a few years after the war yeah she was 45 because she said i wasn't home but she told my father i have a terrible headache and he she took some medication and never woke up
1: oh that is that is the tragedy oh it's in a way
3: it's connected yeah of course yeah
1: now, there's a video that the Russians made at Auschwitz, and you are actually in it. I, I went and saw it right. out after I'd read your book. And it's very, very moving to see that little girl now and know everything that, that she's been through because of your book. And I, I think the most staggering thing to me, reading your book, was was your attitude to death because it was everywhere and therefore it had become commonplace for you can we talk a little bit about what point you realized that
3: that wasn't commonplace very late although when i I was in a dp camp there were no deaths just the opposite they were getting us back to life Mm. but everybody was a refugee everybody was a victim of something and they were recuperating. Poland was terrible. I couldn't even think. The first time when I realized, when I came to America, and I was almost 12, yeah. 11 and a half, I was in eighth grade. And I was speaking to a little girl next to me, eighth grade. And she said to me, Oh, she said, I'm so happy I don't have to play piano anymore. She said, I've been playing since I'm four or five. Oh, I had enough. She was 12. Mm. And I said, really? In my head, I said, she played piano when she was four or five. You mean she wasn't hungry? It struck me then that life for other children Mm. was normal. And it took me... It's interesting. I didn't get it when I went back to Poland because Poland was under the Russians already. And it was... The communists were there, yeah. and I had a terrible time. GP camps, everybody was some kind of a victim, recuperating. In America, they were normal. And here's a normal person who played piano Well, I was in Auschwitz. I still remember to this day my reaction. Oh, my God, she played piano. So that's when I realized that that's not what life was for everybody. Yeah. Just
1: for anyone listening, to make it clear, you were one of just five Jewish children from the town in Poland that you grew up
3: in to survive. Five children who came from Auschwitz. My town, some were sent to Treblinka, some were sent to Auschwitz, some were killed somewhere or other. In other words, kids who went to Auschwitz and came back from Auschwitz.
1: Yeah. They were there were five. That's, that's yeah. incredible. And I'm the youngest. Yeah. But you say very clearly that you don't have survivor's guilt. You use a term survivor's growth. And I wonder if you could ex- explain to people listening what you mean by that.
3: Guilt and all that, to me, it's just vocabulary. What I have is a resp- survivor's responsibility that I can go in my life from now and forever as if everything is normal and usual. I have to help myself and the people around me to know what happened and to remember those who aren't here to speak for themselves. I can't let all these million-and-a-half children be all the ashes, mm. which they were, you know, ashes, to be, just be forgotten, well, I am walking around and going to eating and restaurants. I can't do that. I just have to make sure that people who weren't there will remember. Because one of the terrible things when people would get onto those cattle cars was the thought that they will die, be killed, and nobody will remember them. Mm. We all want to be remembered, every one of us on earth. I mean, can you imagine even yourself? I don't know anything about you, but I'm sure you want to be remembered. Yeah, kindly, (laughs) hopefully. Exactly, right? People write books, people build buildings, Mm. people do all kinds of things, put their names on on walls so they can be remembered because it's not like we we won't be here forever. And I, I am the memory I remember those who have no one else to remember them.
1: You say in the book, you, you've never had the t- the tattoo on your arm removed, even though people have offered to remove it for you, because you actually use the word, it's an obligation, which I think is a really interesting right. word. Yeah.
3: Exactly right. If we revisit
1: the story of the gas chamber, because there are several suggestions as to why, because obviously you were very young, so you, you can only make guesses at why certain things happened. But one of the explanations about why, on that occasion, the Germans appeared to change their mind is that the Russians had already liberated a camp. And you you actually say at that point, the evidence of what the Germans were doing was indisputable. But actually, sadly, and you talk about this in your prologue, lots of people do still refuse to believe what happened. So what I'd like to know is what the rest of us can do to try to combat those lies?
3: Me, people like me. And everybody who was alive. I belong to, to I, I just went to a meeting. That's not a meeting. I would say it's like a gathering of Holocaust survivors. And there were people who never spoke about it. Never, my age. Mm. and And I heard some stories that even I was surprised because you know, everybody's story is different the very few people that had the same exact story because we were all in different places. They put you here, they put you there. They, they, that was the whole point mm. of not having you go as a group because a group you have relationship in a group. They didn't want the, you to have any relationship because in a relationship you may survive, but on your own is much harder. So each one of us has a separate story. I heard stories and i was like shocked and i said to the person have you been speaking he said no i said you have to you must you, you you're an old man i mean old my age you're in the 80s mm. also a young survivor he said well i'm beginning now and his wife sitting next to him said every time he speaks he can't sleep a whole week oh, so sometimes it's self-preservation mm. Yeah. however i think that's an obliga- that's my obligation and i think it's an obligation of every holocaust survivor every one of us no matter where we were to tell the world before we leave this world
1: one of the things that i found is just a delightful little note in your book a sort of a, a footnote is that one of the women she's now a woman but one of the children that also survived outfits also moved to New Jersey and became
3: a teacher and actually ended up teaching your yes. grandchildren. That's can incredible. you imagine? Can you imagine? She died last year, unfortunately. When I'm standing with my number, there are two people next to me, a little boy called Michael and a little girl called Sarah. And I knew nothing about them. And a book came out, Michael and his daughter, fabulous woman, fabulous, wrote her father's story, and she has this picture on her book that says the book was called "The Survivors Club." I'm looking at my book, <laughs> <laughs> and my and the picture that I showed in my hand my is there part of it, not all of it. And I called up right away, and she said, "Oh, I know that picture because I they didn't have room on the cover, so she chose her father and the little girl." And she said to me, Oh, yeah, this is my father, Michael, and this is somebody I know called, called Sarah, and she's teaching, and this is the school. And I said, Really? That's the school my kids go to, I went to, because they were grown mm-hmm. by then, older. I realized that she was the uh, first grade teacher of my children, and I knew her. That's incredible. To my grandchildren, not to my children, my grandchildren. But I didn't know that she was a little girl in that picture until a few years ago. It's a miracle.
1: It, it, it is. I don't. I don't like to use words like that, but that in that instance does seem to be, yeah, one of those things that the universe just does and throws in your path. Yeah. Tova this has been absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. I would advise everybody read your book The Daughter of Auschwitz which you've written with Malcolm Brabant. It's a it's a really interesting read. I wish you many more birthdays and many more eggs for dinner, Tova. Thank
3: you. Thank you very much.
0: hello i am joined on the zoom by activist and author soma Sara. soma hello hi
4: thank you so much for having me
0: thank you so so much for joining us now our listeners will no doubt recognize your name because we praised everyone's invited your campaign tackling rape culture when it all began but please could you remind us a little bit about it and its aims and how it all started
4: Yes, it began in June 2020. It was at a time of pause. It was the beginning of the pandemic and I was finishing university and I'd just been having lots of conversations with close friends. We just began to realise how many of us had been victims of sexual violence and harassment and abuse, particularly throughout our teenage years. It was just this kind of, I don't know, this sort of moment of realization you know realization of the scale and the prevalence and how normalized it was and also how we didn't really share the experiences when we were younger and there was such a huge amount of stigma and shame and we didn't really have the language or the courage to really talk about it or confront it or seek help or support and I think there was definitely an attitude of you just this is just how it is and you have to get on with it yeah so it was those conversations that I had and from there I just decided that I wanted to share some of my stories and talk about it online on social media and I did a post and it was literally just kind of a list of things that I went through and different experiences things like sexual bullying and not really being taken seriously and like derogatory comments and being groped and grabbed and like invasively touched in like house parties on nights out being followed home always kind of constantly feeling unsafe and then things like image-based abuse and kind of bullying online that happened and violence and um, harassment so I was Totally overwhelmed with the response that I had from my peers in my community, who basically messaged me to say, I resonate with everything that you're saying. That is my experience too. And then they shared their stories. And then I shared those stories. And it was just this kind of really overwhelming moment of people speaking out and talking about things that they'd been through and things that had happened, talking about referring to the issue of a rape culture and how it was the kind of attitudes and behaviors that were creating a wider environment that enabled sexual violence to exist and thrive and how victims were not taken seriously, they were not believed, they were shamed, and the accused were always kind of protected and seemed to just, there was no repercussions, no accountability. From that, I just felt that I wanted to create a more permanent safe space called Everyone's Invited, which was a platform, and it was a very simple idea, an anonymous place for survivors to share their stories. It was just building up for the next few months and then it really exploded back in March 2021 when um, our survivors began sharing again and this time they were kind of talking about the names of institutions that may have been associated with their stories because a lot of this abuse was kind of happening to young people within educational environments it just really went viral and blew up and it kind of hit the media. And I was contacted by a journalist from The Times and I did a big interview and they put me on the front page. So I think from then it kind of triggered this um, really extraordinary conversation. I could never have anticipated the level of discussion and the explosion and and the light that was shone on this area. Yeah, it was very overwhelming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to dwell on it too long because... I think it's quite negative, but there was inevitably a backlash, wasn't there?
4: Yeah, you know, it was inevitable that there would, as you say, that there would have been. And I think I underestimated like how challenging it would be and how hard it is to be on the receiving end of that. Mm -hmm. And especially when, you know, the issue is so close to your heart and it's like coming from a place of, you know, the trauma of your friends and family and yourself. Amazingly, I have an incredible team of volunteers that everyone's invited who we were kind of all going through this together. Um, so I was able to like have their support, but it was the kind of backlash of, um, I guess, some boys, some men, and then mothers of boys, and just people who, you know, maybe saw these stories and felt that it kind of maybe jarred with their own experience and their own perception of reality. And they didn't want to kind of have the empathy to, to engage in the discussion and I think that the word rape and the experience of rape is typically it has very brutal connotations and I think there is a fear around the word rape Mm. and and the act of it of course and obviously it's like widely abhorred across society and I think that people shy away from confronting that Mm -hmm. and they would rather put it somewhere under the carpet, away from view, and like free themselves from any kind of association or responsibility. It's almost like a survival instinct, alleviating themselves from social responsibility, calling rapists these crazy evil monsters that exist in dark alleyways. It's like really othering them. So they are far away. And in that sense, it is kind of alleviating any kind of collective social responsibility. I guess that's what we are trying to show with everyone's invited is how rape is it's a universal experience it's prep you know it's prevalent it's, it is widespread and it is a social issue that we are all responsible for it is not you know a question of a few bad apples it's the whole of the society and the systems that systematically fail to support survivors at every level, whether it's on, on that interpersonal, individual level, if you, like, failing to support or believe a friend who's come forward and shared their story, it's incredibly traumatic. Or whether it's on, you know, in the criminal justice system or a policing level, Or political level, it's like kind of at every stage you want educational institutions when staff are failing to deal with these accusations properly and appropriately and they're re-traumatizing victims and police are doing the same thing, you know, not taking victims seriously and re-traumatizing them through very traumatic and scary process. And then, you know, we have the same thing. Criminal justice system is, of course, a very broken system, which ultimately has in this country decriminalized rape. The fact of the matter is 1.4 percent of all rape cases actually lead to a charge and summons. That's a one in 70 charge of your rapist being convicted. So, you know, that means that it is effectively decriminalized. So it is. A very widespread issue at every level of society. And now we are all part of it and we're all complicit. And I think that is the message that we are trying to really convey. It's a cultural problem.
0: It was amazing reading your new book, also called Everyone's Invited, the collection of very considered, eloquent, rage filled, yet empathy filled essays. It's a lot of the stuff that we cover, particularly in our section, Sexism of the Week. And it's like, yep, yep wider reaction from the media from the home office and the department for education to everyone's invited was incredible and i think that sexual violence is endemic in schools was a real eye opener even though i'm always surprised that people are still surprised by this shit basically since its start as an acorn in june 2020 and the explosion in march 2021 how has the platform everyone's invited developed
4: Well, I guess it's just been kind of growing over that time. And we've had those big moments where we had a lot of publicity. We're in the media, going viral as well on social media. And it's been really amazing to kind of witness a growth of a really special community. It goes back to that original idea of the importance of sharing a story and how it gives so many people a sense of catharsis, a sense of relief, an opportunity to heal Of sense of validation that what they're going through was not okay and they should never be ashamed and also most importantly the knowing that they are not alone in this Mm -hmm. and there are others out there who can relate to and understand and empathize with trauma that you've also experienced and you know that's just the reality that we live in I think every single woman I know has had some experience on the spectrum of a rape culture that has left them changed or traumatized in some way in some form that is just the reality of being a woman that we all live with this kind of constant threat of implicit violence the kind of the soundtrack of our existence you know it's always there in the background.
0: I just recently interviewed the brilliant author, Kamala Shamsi, and she refers to it in her book as girl fear, which I was like, yeah, nailed it. That's absolutely it. Every woman knows that and it starts that young. It's girl fear.
4: Yeah, it's like genuinely from like the age of 12, 13, walking down the street and you feel that fear, you feel vulnerable and it is not okay it is not
0: okay absolutely (laughs) I think that kids have digital lives now from a very early age has really made things harder more relentless and as you say in your book never before has there been a greater gap between the lived experiences of the young and those of the old and I think that is reflected in those antagonistic parents you very kindly refer to them as naive parents Um, and I think you could add that little bit of a tagline onto every single chapter to be honest with you All of your essays, like I said before, are really considered, but two stood out to me hugely. So I'd like to chat about the Collectors and Ubiquitous Pawns and Naive Parents essays, which are, I think, interlinked, really. And how vital it is for parents to have those conversations with children and have them early discomfort be damned and what's worrying to me when I was reading those essays and I've read them both three times now I've been horrified every time even though it's stuff I know I think just seeing it written down and also seeing it written down by someone who has lived them because I haven't I'm lucky enough not to have been at school when there was digital life and all of these horrific stories of boys collecting nudes coercing very young girls into sending nudes the story of the girl whose nudes were projected onto the wall of a house party made me feel viscerally sick being 45 so twice your age and having mates who have got kids who are of an age where they should be having these conversations and my wonderful liberal progressive friends going oh i don't want to have that conversation I'm like, well, you fucking have to. That discomfort of parents not talking to their children is
4: so dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is a huge problem. There is that squeamishness and you know, it's very uncomfortable, but the reality is your kids are being exposed to this content, very explicit content, probably before they turn 12. <laughs> like, you know, they will have seen porn that's just the age we live in. It is infinitely accessible anytime, anywhere. Everyone has a phone, everyone has a smart, you know, smartphone, laptop, iPad. It's just, you know, the way the world is and we cannot afford to be so, you know, naive, just kind of living in this fairy tale world that your child is untouched by this very extreme, violent, explicit content because it is so prevalent and it is everywhere. Jessica Ringrose one of the academics I cite in my essay talks about the importance of being proactive rather than reactive Mm -hmm. in our approach to this area. So again, as you mentioned, having these conversations really young, much early on, um, talking to them about pornography, talking to them about social media, image-based abuse, image-based harassment. And that's what the book is doing in terms of empowering parents with the knowledge and the understanding and the tools to have those conversations, which are so crucial. They need to understand what's going on to be able to support their children who are navigating a very different landscape a very different environment which is so you know fundamentally and profoundly informed by pornography and social media and the digital world you know young people are just growing up in such a different way mm. they are online 24 7 they are developing who they are, their opinions, their views, they're consuming news, making friends, developing their relationships, sexual relationships, all through the screen online, on Snapchat, on Instagram, on Facebook, sex as well. And it's just a very different era. And I think it's just so important that we are reframing, well, an older generation is reframing the way that they are approaching and looking at these issues and understanding that it is not as simple as just saying, don't send nudes. Mm. And like that will solve the issue, no, like this is a generation that you know digital sex is real sex for them, and can you imagine saying to your child, Don't have sex and that's the blanket response to it <laughs> that's it's the nonsense. yeah, yeah, it doesn't work like that, and, and it what it does is creates this environment of shame and stigma and hostility where your child will not feel able to talk to you and therefore they won't be able to get support and they will suffer in silence if they experience abuse online. And that's what happened to my generation. There was no one to talk to. There was no guidance, support. It was like we were kind of the, the guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. I think in most cases, we, we understood how to navigate and use these platforms much better than our parents did. And it was kind of like the land of the lawless yeah the reality is if you can't talk to your child your young your teenager about sex how do you expect them to come to you for support if they've been raped if they've been assaulted if they've experienced image-based abuse and sexual abuse unsolicited dick pics had their news shared without their consent you know they will not come to you because they feel ashamed and embarrassed and they will suffer in silence it's a real real problem that lack of dialogue and discussion and those open conversations and you know the reality is girls are victims and boys are also victims to this culture this is a culture that is like you know i talk about this in in other essays in the gender scripts and the earlier essays but you know so much about socialization and the kind of different forms of scripts that are given to young people so patriarchal forms of masculinity it's a huge issue when you have very extreme gender scripts being taught as like this is the only way to be a man you know it's all connected and at the moment boys are vulnerable to very extreme radicalization and indoctrination to very Hateful ideologies of objectifying women, um, violence against women, and anti feminist sexist culture that is being so widely spread online. And, you know, they are vulnerable as well. And we need to help them. We need to reach out to boys and girls equally. It's about promoting, you know, a safe environment where young people are free to. You know explore and engage and develop their sexualities in a healthy and equal respectful way um, but you know it's really important to acknowledge that i guess this is a moment where we need to be reaching out really to both genders and we've always said from the very beginning that this is a movement it's about everyone everyone's invited this is for all both women and men boys and girls you know marginalized genders and identities who are even more statistically likely to experience different forms of sexual violence. It is so crucial to understand how this is a universal experience and a universal problem that can affect anyone, including men. They can also be victims of male sexual violence. The solution lies with everyone too. We need men and boys to be part of the dialogue to make a change. As you mentioned before, there is rage, but there's a lot of empathy in the book because ultimately that is the conclusion that we came to. To make a change, to engage people in the dialogue, you need to have empathy and you need to listen and you need to find the common ground and try to relate to people who don't necessarily agree with you or see your point of view or who've been raised in such a different environment or in a different place. You know, it's about making those connections. If you're angry and hostile, you're isolating people further and they will never come around and they will never understand. And we have always, from the very beginning, promoted... The importance of reconciliation and moving forward and yes it is on the one hand it is a it is a lot to ask of survivors and those who have suffered to ask them for forgiveness and for empathy and to reconcile because they are justified in their anger and in their pain but at the same time nothing will change unless we you know allow people the space to to grow and evolve and to become better and to feel better and we need to help them we need to help perpetrators become better and change those ideas of reconciliation and empathy are so fundamental to the philosophical foundation of everyone's invited i just want to nip back to your essay ubiquitous porn because i can't stop thinking about it so
0: thank you it was so refreshing soma To read something from someone of your young age, and I don't mean that in a patronising way at all, because you're so much more switched on than I was, but to read a sceptical attitude towards porn.
4: It was uncomfortable initially to kind of, to have that. Yeah, because it's kind of against everything I grew up with in terms of the kind of general peer-on-peer sense of like, it it was very normalised. It was almost like if you didn't do it, you were prude. it was definitely uncomfortable to even like get to that point but I think seeing people like Billie Eilish speak out and like talk about it in such an honest way helped me and lots of my peers like have the confidence to criticize and look at it in a critical way and think you know this is really quite it's gotten very extreme.
0: Yes yeah and you can see your journey throughout that essay of you examining
4: it and your discomfort in examining it. It was uncomfortable because I didn't want to believe that I wanted to believe in you know sex positivity for all and like we should be open and free in our sexuality and embrace and I think it is quite you know some hard truths to consider that actually it's not very empowering or free. The porn that exists and that is so widespread it is just filled with very dehumanizing and objectifying and extreme scripts and I think writing the book going on the journey doing the research reading papers looking at different philosophers and academics and kind of pulling it all together and just thinking wow like this has been hugely impactful for my generation if you connect that you look at the experiences of my peers of of the testimonies you see like it makes sense Mm -hmm. it makes sense why sex is so much more extreme from such a young age and what is a thing that has become so ubiquitous and accessible and normalized and the thing that everyone watches pornography right boys they're watching every day girls too watch it and it's a rewiring it's like very it's profoundly influential in like our understanding of sex and what it should be and what it should look like it's kind of basic maths when you look at it yeah and then you see so i was reading amir srinivasan her essay on porn which is called talking to my students about pornography um she looks at the kind of anti-porn porn feminists of the 60s and how they basically predicted this and everything and it's really
0: eerie to read that listeners read your soma sara and then revisit your andrea Dawkin. that's what i would recommend <laughs> <laughs> where can people get involved
4: soma what we encourage is to continue having these dialogues in your day-to-day lives, like keep talking, keep having these discussions and intervene, like if you see something happening, if you see something abusive, can you challenge that behaviour in a way that's empathetic and isn't, you know, about anger or hostility but genuinely questioning something or someone who is doing something that you feel to be abusive or wrong, you know, it's about really encouraging people to become role models for positive change joining following us being part of our community buying the book if possible yeah just keeping the conversation going and you know speak to your teachers speak to your staff members keep campaigning you know keep putting pressure on your mps and government it's so important that they prioritize this area we have our website and then we have our social media accounts on Instagram and LinkedIn and TikTok. So you can follow us all there. And you donate, donate. We need to keep the website going and we need to keep the testimonies there. And to do so, we need some support as a new charity. So it would be amazing. donate oh
0: congratulations on charity status that is excellent and yes (laughs) listeners if you have got any spare cash we know times are tough but it is a very very good place to put it as is spending some money on everyone's invited which is available now in all good bookshops and soma thank you so so much for chatting with me of course thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure
3: you play ball like a girl
2: go on do one kid Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we dump tackle the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. I'm going to start off with the opening weekend of the WSL which was a week and a half ago as you hear this but we now know set a new record attendance of 89,381 compared to the previous record of 74,247 so that's great. You know, it's a big jump in attendance, but we do know that 47,000 of those came from the North London Derby and a further 27,000 were at the Merseyside Derby at Anfield. So this is great, but it does mean that the remaining 15,000 were split across four other matches, two of which were at Stadiums, Brighton and Reading at the Amex Stadium attracted just over 5,000 and Leicester v Aston Villa saw 2,700 turn up at the King Power. Great to be smashing attendance records, but we do have to drill a little bit deeper than the headline figure to get a picture of what's going on. We do have to consider that this was also during the men's international break and that there were big derby matches being played, both of which you would expect to push that attendance up a little bit. I think just screaming that there's been a record broken is a little bit misleading here, to be honest. We should also have a look at the fact that 53,000 tickets were sold for that North London derby, but 6,000 didn't turn up on the day. And maybe that's because the tickets only cost £12. It's a conundrum because one of the great things about women's football is that it is affordable to take your entire family to. I booked three adult tickets and two children's tickets to an Arsenal women's match at the Emirates last week and it came to £56 with booking fees. But I would imagine that this would have cost in excess of £200 if we were talking about watching Arsenal men's team play at the Emirates. That said, we mustn't undervalue the women's game. The WSL chair, Dawn Airy said in an interview last week that it was difficult to get time in the men's stadia because the fixtures are so congested and especially with the World Cup coming up in November this year and the disruption that that brings with it. But once you start looking at all the competitions, you know, the FA Cup, the Champions League, the domestic leagues, blah, 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 the fixtures are always congested and it's something men's team managers are always moaning about. Give us a bigger stage and we can absolutely compete on it, Airey said. But it's not just about having that stage, as the Amex and the King Power can now testify after last weekend's action. People need to know that it's there. Charlton Athletic Women, for example, also played their championship match at the Valley that weekend. I only knew about it because I happened to be at the Valley that week and saw some advertising. Otherwise... I wouldn't have known about it. Others have said the same. It wasn't well promoted. There are other things that we need to be thinking about if we want to get bums on seats in the women's game. Segwaying seamlessly now to rugby, where on the subject of bigger stages, it has been announced this week that England will hold their first ever standalone fixture at Twickenham next year as part of the 2023 Six Nations. The Red Roses will play France on April 29th for the first time taking centre stage at the venue. While they have played at Twickers before, which I believe is what you call it if you're a posh man from Surrey, that has only ever been on the same day as the men. A great way of getting people interested, but it's time for them to stand on their own. So how are they going to get there? Well... The Rugby World Cup gets underway on Saturday and England go into it as the favourites and they're hoping for their lioness moment. Scrum half Leanne Enfont, it looks like a French name to me, she said that the teams want to create a movement and I'm here for it. You can follow that movement by watching all their matches and those of the other home nations on ITV and S4C if you're in Wales. Let's look ahead to that for a minute. Tough group for Wales and Scotland who are up against host nation New Zealand and Australia in their pool A, but they face each other on the opening weekend. They play at 5:45 a.m. our time on Sunday the 9th. Over in pool C, England face France, South Africa and Fiji. We kick off against Fiji on Saturday the 8th at 4.45am. Ouch. That time difference is, in all honesty, going to be a huge barrier for our women's teams. So let's make some noise about the tournament and help spur that movement on. Finally, the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Unsung Hero nominations are now open and anyone can nominate a volunteer of their choice to win the award who they can demonstrate in film or in writing is making their community better. You've got until October the 30th to submit nominations to Hero at bbc.co.uk so you know what to do. That's all for me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, you know when they say something's too good to be true? Yeah. They're not talking about this film, are they?
2: (laughs) Plot twist! How rude. (laughs) This week we watched 1997's The Devil's Advocate, directed by Mr. Helen Mirren, Taylor Hackford. The film is an adaptation of a novel by Andrew Niederman. The screenplay was written by Jonathan Lemkin and Tony Gilroy, the latter who also wrote the original Bourne trilogy and Michael Clayton. So what I'm saying is he's got some chops. We probably won't dwell too much on Lemkin's filmography. Niederman's novel of the same name took a while to come to the big screen with various names attached during different attempts to develop it. Before Hackford's involvement, Joel Schumacher was going to direct it and Brad Pitt was to play the lead character, Kevin Nomax, a role which eventually was given to Keanu Reeves. Al Pacino, who plays the tremendously subtly named John Milton, uh, or, if you prefer, the (laughs) devil... He didn't want the role. He turned it
1: down thrice (laughs) before eventually taking it on. Uh, I see something
0: in that, you know, turning down something three times. And then did he hear a cock crow and he realised his mistake and he was humiliated and there was some contrition? I don't know what you're talking about at this stage. I'm talking about quasi-quadthunk. What are you talking about?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was talking about Peter. (laughs) Peter in the
0: garden, not Peter Rabbit. He was also in a garden, though. It all gets very confusing. The Bible should have really really just stuck to the script, really. Uh,
2: He didn't want the role. He turned it down three times, apparently because he thought the character, as it was written, was little more than a slick car salesman, and he said he wanted to see some metaphor for what's going on in our lives today. And fair play to them. They absolutely got there in the end, though we can debate how subtle that metaphor actually is. Spoiler (laughs) alert. They literally spell it out at times during the film.
0: (laughs) There is absolutely no subtlety in this film whatsoever.
2: There's no metaphor, is there? According (laughs) to reports at the time, Schumacher's version of the film was ditched because there was no front-runner for old Beelzebub in the frame. Though Pacino did suggest Sean Connery might like the role, apparently, which does amuse me very much.
0: Yeah, I can't tell whether they were friends or not. Sort of unimaginable, isn't
2: it, Sean Connery in that role? But anyway, the, the climate changed apparently after the O.J. Simpson trial reignited rage over the criminal justice system. And props to Don King, who shows up for a cameo and is either the most self-aware or the least self-aware individual ever to walk the earth. Perhaps he just had a massive tax bill. <laughs> the jury's out possible to be both maybe i suppose i mean i just think given his reputation that he shows up as a friend of satan i just think like i I would have been keen to avoid that publicity if i was don king but whatever hackford wanted his devil to be more like the one in the actual bible not an all-powerful monster just he said he puts temptation in front of them and lets them choose and indeed free will and humanity's propensity to throw a metaphorical or indeed physical grenade into their own lives became the central theme. So let's have a little look at the plot shall we now that I've danced around it. Kevin Lomax is a successful small town lawyer in Gainesville Florida whose wife Marianne played by a baby Charlize Theron confusingly turns up to watch him doing his job despite apparently having her own job. That was the first thing that confused me why is she just there watching him do his job, like why has she just gone to his place she's work? very
0: supportive Jen it'd be exactly the same if he was a bus driver or you know um, worked in a Starbucks uh, this reminds me of, do you remember when Jade
1: Adams said her brother had never ever turned up to see her do comedy and his answer to her was, well you don't come and watch me be an electrician <laughs> <laughs> and fair, fair play
2: <laughs> his secret, he's ever so good at picking a jury, we've heard that one before haven't we lads yeah, also, the judge always says, I'll allow it. <laughs> Which is helpful, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're not lawyering properly. Anyway, he's representing a schoolteacher, Lloyd Getis, played by Hannah Hart's Chris Bauer, who's accused of sexually assaulting a pupil. It dawns on our care that Getis is very much guilty, but he shuns the opportunity to do the right thing after a local journalist commiserates with him in the bogs. Never mind, lad, can't win em all, can you? Yes, I bleeding well can, thinks our Kev.
1: Can I just point out that Chris Bauer looks 40 in this film? And Mickey pointed out to me that he is, in fact, 31.
0: It's an incredible skill to have to always look 40. I'm keen, if anyone's got them, to see Chris Bauer's school photos. What happened was Alec Baldwin turned up and said, always be 40.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A, B, F. Oh. Anyway, while out having a lovely time with
2: his missus, celebrating setting an actual child sex offender free into the world, <laughs> having properly stitched up a traumatized teenage girl in the process, Kev is approached by some. There's not
0: some in the world, Kevin.
2: <laughs> really not. He's approached by some bigwig, hotshot lawyer from New York City. We've been watching you, and we want you on our team in Manhattan. Come and work for John Milton and have a lovely flat on Fifth Avenue. It's too much for Kev and he's in his convertible like a ferret up a trouser leg Mm -hmm. despite God-bothering mum Alice's protestations. But it all starts to go wrong when Kevin wants to knob his sexy colleague and mary starts losing her mind, left alone with the gratuitous tits of the wives of Kevin's colleagues all day, every day. They're not bored and lonely like mary because they've got colour charts, lots of money and they're actual demons. Helps while away the time. Certainly keeps them busy. There's a questionable fertility subplot, some gratuitous church tits and, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for mary It doesn't end well for Kev either. When it transpires that John Milton is plot twist the devil and plot twist his dad, and plot twist his sexy colleague is actually his half sister who his dad wants him to fuck in front of him and spawn the Antichrist. (laughs) And to be honest, this is a bit where they lose me. More on that later. This, this, this is the bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is where it all goes wrong for me. Will Kevin acquiesce despite the objectively horrendous nature of it all, or will he override his own vanity and save the day? And will there be another plot twist, and perhaps then another afterwards? The film did very well. It made $153 million from a budget of $57 million, but $57 million does feel like quite a lot to have paid for those effects and Al Pacino. Critically speaking, people thought Pacino was good. And indeed, he is having a lovely time here, particularly at the hamtastic end. Mm -hmm. But it's all a bit confused, isn't it? And I've I've got to agree with our old pal Roger Ebert on this. The John Grisham stuff clashes with the exorcist stuff, he says. (laughs) It really does, yeah. (laughs) I had seen this a number of times before. Had either of you seen it? And do you remember how you felt about it at the time?
1: I had not seen it. I do have a question for those who saw it contemporaneously. Mm-hmm.
0: Which would be me. Uh, yeah, I saw it when it came out at the at the cinema. I went to see it and I liked it. I, I I enjoyed it. I was confused as to why they went with Paint It Black for the closing credits as opposed to Sympathy for the Devil. But, you know. Hannah, what's your question?
1: Well, my question was, okay, so when they go and stay, when they first arrive in New York and they go and stay in a place that's got full floor-to-ceiling windows and someone has chosen to put curtains with a pelmet up around them. Did that shout out quite as much as it did when I watched it this time? I'm
0: not sure I know what a pelmet is, Hannah. (laughs) <laughs> it's too much material for a view like that that's what that is okay. yeah Hannah I can't say I did notice it but maybe when I was 2021 20, I didn't have quite the eye on interior design that I do now given that I still had a cutout photograph of Scott Bacula in my wardrobe <laughs> <laughs> is that how you pronounce that that's how I pronounce it, and he's my he's my pretend husband. Get off! I would have said of all the
1: ways I would have pronounced it, it's not rhymes with Dracula.
0: <laughs> Scott Bacula. I think I would have said yeah, Bacula. that's what I thought it was. Or Bacula. Bacula. <laughs> Did you fancy me? Did I fancy him? Jen, I thought he lived very interesting lives and was very good at helping other people. <laughs> I can't argue with
2: any of that. Shall we move on? <laughs> well, Hannah,
1: how do you feel about this as the first time viewer? Well, I thought it was ridiculous and, and stupid mm-hmm. and it's really shoddily made and it's got some ridiculous bits like, you know, when they shoot from different angles, one minute, two people are really close together and the next minute they're really far apart and... I know you are usually on tip watch, but the point that I really want to make about this film is that there's a whole scene in which a woman encourages mary Ann to touch her tits to prove that they feel real, even though they're fake. And I am 100% convinced that those tits are real. And yet later, Connie Nielsen is sporting the most obviously fake tits on earth, and we're supposed to believe that they are actually real. It's the devil's work. Obviously,
2: I picked up on this as well and thought the same thing as you. But I wondered if perhaps we were supposed to think that Connie was genetically blessed as the spawn of Satan. And that her tits were
0: so good, naturally, that they looked fake. If Lucifer is your dad and he gives you shit tits, you're going to have a word, aren't you? <laughs> it's, it's gone badly <laughs> wrong, hasn't it? I yeah. I love how this film doesn't so much breadcrumb its big reveal, but just toss out freshly baked loaves from minute one. The title contains the word devil. Al Pacino's in it. Ooh, what's going to happen?
2: But I don't think that's the big reveal. I think we kind of always know that he's a devil, but what we don't necessarily know is that Kevin is his
0: son. That's That's the... Big Still, process, fairly massive slices of bread that lead up to that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: Kevin is stupid, clearly, because he doesn't realise. <laughs> we realise, <laughs> but he doesn't realise. There's a point at which he he goes to meet a man. And he has to. I think it's Delroy Lindo. It and I think he has to go into a basement, right? That's full of candles and spooky shit. And Delroy Lindo is is making magic or like a Jack Monroe casserole out of tongue and nails and Keanu Reeves is like yeah this is normal yeah right and now on to my next job he is a
0: practitioner of
2: the dark arts like let's not fuck around here it's it's quite obvious
0: I found it everything Hannah has said but also embarrassingly entertaining <laughs> I, I had a really nice time I liked watching a very handsome bit of 2 before playing against a delicious slab of ham. (laughs) Uh, I think it might be Pacino's finest terrible performance. He's having the whale of his life.
1: (laughs) Okay, I want to say here I think his performance is pitched perfectly for this film. I think it's a good performance. I don't think it's a performance that I ever want to see, but I think it's perfectly matched for the tempo or whatever you want to call it of this film,
0: The Pitch. Yeah, I think you're right. But the bit that I'd really like to see again, and maybe after we've recorded this I'll go and rewatch it, is how surprised by automatic doors Keanu Reeves is. There's a lovely bit where he's first mating his dad, doesn't know he's his dad yet. Plot twist. And uh yeah, the doors open of their own accord. And if that is not a signal that your dad is the devil, I don't know what is and Keanu Reeves looks genuinely surprised. I might be picking up on this because it's the only expression he has in the film but <laughs> it, it was good I enjoyed it
1: and also it features one of the worst barricades ever she literally puts a chair in front of a door and he and he tries to bash it down for a good oh, 3 or 4 minutes
0: yeah and you're like it's just you can actually reach around and move the chair now it's just ridiculous (laughs) yeah stop spoiling the drama Hannah sorry practical
1: can I also point out something we haven't mentioned yet is that there is a very thinly thinly disguised parody of uh, Donald Trump in here I didn't spot this tell us more the man that uh Colin has has apparently killed his family or not killed his family or who knows definitely killed his his family family, right because you know that's that's what happens. Anyway, he has made all his money in real estate and he lives in a tower in New York that's really, really, really badly decorated with mostly gold shit. Don't tell me that's not
0: Donald Trump. <laughs> I guess 90s, yeah. Yeah, good point, well made. What I will say on that plot plot twist, on that particular plot point is it's... Oh, it's is Kevin going to sell his soul and defend Cullen, who is quite clearly guilty? And that's the Mm. big test. And I'm like, shit, I could defend Cullen. His wife was a nag. It was a moment of madness. Uh He loved her so much he had to kill her. He shot her to calm her down. She's only a woman. It doesn't feel like such a big test of the law, does it? No.
2: I would like to say, in defence of this film, and I think that Keanu Reeves, who I think I would say... I've never found to be particularly good in anything he's ever been in. I I don't think he is the most skilled actor, shall we say. I actually think he's all right in this. I think of the things I've seen him in, this is probably one of his better performances. And I do actually think that the film has some vaguely interesting things to say. It's just that they have all already been said before in the many things that this film has ripped off. Like Frankenstein and Paradise Lost, like I've just I've seen it done better before, but I don't think I don't think that they're not like interesting points that it makes about how like basically, given the opportunity, we will all just sort of be cunts and 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 fuck things up. We don't actually need this higher power to like push us into doing things because we just humanity just does it itself.
1: There is one thing in it that I want to say that it does really well, and that's when. Keanu Reeves, when he doesn't realise it's his dad at the time, but when his dad suggests to him that he drops out of a case so he can support his wife, and he says, I don't want to uh, resent her for this. And it's mm. presented in that moment as being like a perfectly reasonable statement. And later, Al Pacino throws it back at him in his own, in his literal own words, as a way of saying, you know, that was incredibly selfish. You're not there for your wife. You are a terrible person. And I. Gave it a tiny round of applause for that.
0: I mean, that's all very interesting and thanks for sharing your opinions. But let's head to (laughs) christiananswers.net and see what was said there. (laughs) I'm quoting now. Devil's advocate is very offensive. There is a tremendous amount of sexual content, including innumerable nude scenes. I love tremendous amount and innumerable. You've really counted there, haven't you? Several explicit sex scenes and references to heinous sex acts. The movie is littered with profanity, loaded with violence and contains a number of occult references. Movie making quality. Five stars. Five stars. (laughs) So what's that website, Mick? ChristianAnswers.net. That's my afternoon (laughs) film. Kevin's mum, Alice, right? She got knocked up by the devil when she was 16 and Kevin is supposed to be 30 so she's supposed to be 46 and she looks well into her 60s Mm-hmm.
2: well she's had quite a hard life to be fair she has
0: yeah she's really lived through it she's done a lot of preaching i can really take it out of you as you will find on the reviews on christiananswers.net <laughs> 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 oh al pacino used to be so beautiful i just want to say that as well yeah when is it dog day
1: afternoon's birthday Oh, my God, I look for that all the time. There are two (laughs) films that I look for all the time, even though I should just write it down. I wouldn't need to keep looking. And one of them we're doing in a couple of weeks, which is one of the ones that I've been meaning to watch for ages. But anyway, yeah. Has it got
0: Scott Bacula in it, please? (laughs) No,
1: it doesn't. The Godfather, he is so handsome. He looks like a Roman god.
2: He's not very beautiful in this, because he keeps doing this weird thing with his tongue, which when I've watched it before, I never noticed that he does this weird, like, snaky tongue in it, which is quite awful to bear witness to to be honest
0: (laughs) we're doing it now listeners and it is like (laughs) people are being sick in other rooms i for reference so obviously we watched him in glengarry glen ross as ricky roma which was filmed in 1992 or released in 1992 and we just watched him in the devil's advocate which is 1997 and in those five years al pacino has aged 54 years He's aged worse than a southern mother in a 90s film. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or the parents in Jaws who were all in their 70s and have uh, eight-year-old children.
2: <laughs> He's older than a Disney parent.
0: That's um, <laughs> oh, taken it too far, Jen. He probably just did
2: have a kid in 1992. That's probably what's aged him so much in those five years. That's how I feel, <laughs> to be fair. Free will, Jen. Free will. <laughs> does anyone else have anything burning they want to say about this film hannah dated yeah okay
0: dated but i had such a lovely time and if you want to hear more of my thoughts on this film please visit (laughs) (laughs) christiananswers.net
2: i don't actually think it's dated but i also don't think it's rated but i did enjoy watching it uh i have to say I i had a lovely time
0: right who's next then it is me as you wish And I say that because we are going back to 1987 to watch The Princess Bride. And I've got to admit to being a little bit nervous because this could have very well been a flicking pick for me. But instead, I'm throwing it to the rated or dated wolves. And by wolves, I mean Hannah Dunleavy. (laughs) (laughs) That's that wolf noise. I don't even know what that noise was. I'm much less frightened now. She just wants a tickle and some meat. (laughs)
3: funded issue for all women.